So we're going to be in 1 John, 1 John, the little book in the back, uh, number uh, chapter 2. And we finished last, last week on verses 9 and 10. So if you would turn there, 1 John chapter 2, verse 9. I'll give you a minute to get there. What a crazy summer this has been for weather, huh? Boy, the grass is loving it. i got to cut the grass every three days. It's amazing. Uh, what a weird summer. Uh, last few summers, it's been so hot you couldn't stand it. And then when I first moved here, it was so cold I couldn't stand it. And it was just amazing. We had some summer missionaries up that first summer. We were at our old house across the street, and there were three girls from Kentucky, I believe. And they, uh, they asked me to build a fire in the living room in July. <laughs> I did it, but it was kind of against my better nature to think, oh, you know, I don't know, it seems like it's a little early for that, you know. But uh, it was very interesting. Verse 9 of chapter 2. He that saith he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loves his brother abides in the light and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. That's where we finished last week. John 2 with a very practical teaching on loving our brothers. Uh, love is the only true path for a Christian. We have no other option because God is love. Love is our source. Love is our origin. That's the only way that we can behave. If we are truly in Christ, then his love is truly in us and it flows through us to others, reaching through us to a lost world. You can feel it in you. And I think I said last week, if you ever run into someone that's really irritating you, pray and say, Lord, this person is really irritating me. Please help me to love this person. And it's interesting what the Holy Spirit can often do. I don't want to say always, because it doesn't always work. Um, and the more that we walk in that love, the more we abide in the life and the light that Christ has shown in our lives. So my guess is, before we start this crazy next section, uh, that John set the manuscript down and came back to it on a different day. I, I don't know if it's John or the Holy Spirit, but I'd like to think it was probably the Holy Spirit wanted to be a little more creative with this poem that we're going to read next. Uh, but it is a strange little poem, and... I know as a new believer, when I read this, I thought, this is odd. Why is this here? Verse 12, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the father. I have written unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. So you read that, and you go back and you think, well, that's just a complete change in the methodology of his normal writing. And, and what is he saying? It's, it's, it's repetitious, it's unusual, and I don't know the answer to why it's there. So don't, don't expect me to tell you. I'll tell you a few things I've learned about it. First of all, it is in a poetic format. The, the Hebrews, when they, when they wrote poetry, they paralleled ideas rather than rhyming them. So you have these parallel ideas. Uh, you have born ones, fathers, and young men in the first place. And that's all in the present tense. And then you have disciplined ones, fathers, and young men all in the perfect tense. Uh, 
Little children uses two words. The rest of them only describe them with one word. Little children is technia, which means born ones, and paideia, which means disciplined ones, little children under discipline. Uh, now, the born ones, I I'm reading what other commentators have said, at least those that I agree with, and uh, it emphasizes technia, the little born one of God, that's what we are the moment we're saved. We're, we're, we're born physically first, but then we all, if we're going to heaven, have to be born a second time. We have to be spiritually born because we're, we're born, you know, I used to teach that we were born and our spirits were dead. We were born with a spirit that worked. It just wasn't in connection with God. It was disconnected from God. So separated from God is really the definition of death. So it's, it's fair to say, although in English it's not particularly accurate, it's fair to say we're born with a spirit that is dead to God, and that's probably a good way to say it. And when we're born again, that, that spirit gets regenerated. Jesus said, except a man be born again of water and of blood, he will not see the kingdom of God. And this is the point. We all have to become little children and be born again. And the emphasis, of course, is on a shared nature. The next one is disciplined ones, uh, paideia, uh, relationship by discipline. Now, the first thing you learn when you get saved is that God is your father and you have this connection to him. This for me, I was 25 years old, so it was very real to me, this connection that I now had with God that, that I'd never had before. It, all of a sudden, I mean, I've often described it as a big eye in the sky. I felt, felt a little intimidated with this new relationship because I was used to wandering around by myself doing my own thing and a lot of things I didn't really want someone watching me. And then when I became saved and I felt this presence with me, I, honestly, it felt like there was an eye in the sky looking down at me. But the truth was the Holy Spirit was in me and in me, he was doing everything I was doing and I was dragging him places I know he didn't want to go. So the first thing you learn as a brand new Christian is that you're born one of God and God begins to move in your life. And in my life, he began to say yes to some things and no to other things. And I became aware of his word in my heart. I became, became aware of him leading me. And when I did something wrong, he made me know that what I was doing was wrong. It was clear. If you don't have this experience of feeling this connection with God, a technia and discipline, a idea from God, uh, you really need to go back and look at your, your, your experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not enough to go to church. It's not enough to read scripture. It's not enough to try hard. It's not enough to be good. In fact, the harder we try, the worse we get. And the more we try to be good, the worse we are. So that's even the worst direction you can go. What you have to be is born again. You need the Holy Spirit to come into your life and give you a new birth. This is the characteristics of all Christians young or old. If you're 75 years old and you receive Christ, you're a little child in Christ. You're a little born one. You've just been born again. The born one's emphasis is on a shared nature through birth. And so now as you walk through life, you begin to develop in yourself the nature of God. The nature of God is now flowing through you. Discipline one means a relationship with the Father through discipline. If the Holy Spirit has never told you no, if he's never said don't do that, if he's never said to you go here or go there, if he's never said to you stop, 
I would question my salvation. I would go back back to the basics. Make sure you've confessed your sin, sins, plural. Make sure you invite the Lord Jesus into your life to lead you. And then ask him why you're not experiencing his discipline in your life. Because that's the first two things a born-again believer discovers in their life. The first two things. A connection to God and discipline. Now John, in this, in this or the Holy Spirit in this, uh, skips from the, uh, the little babies to the older Christians. And we don't know why. He's kind of sandwiches the young people in the middle of this. But to the fathers, you know... Both descriptions to the fathers say, ye have known him that is from the beginning. A past experience with a present continuous result. You came to know him back in the past. You've been a Christian a long time now, fathers. You came to know him back in the past. But that experience stays with you. This is the point. You have known past act. But that experience stays with you, present result. I can close my eyes and go back to the very, the very moment I asked him to forgive me and to come into my life and save me. I can remember that. There's a lot of things I don't remember. Half the time I don't remember, you know, uh, to put on my shoes. But uh, I, I do remember that day. I do remember the time he began to move in my life. And I do remember the times he's begun to discipline my life and change my life. I have known him and that knowledge stays with me. If you're an older Christian, you've reached that point. The mature Christian, the elder, if you will. <clears throat> the early excitement uh, of being saved is past. The major battles in your life have already been won. Your focus now is no longer, how do I get victory over these sins? You're the young man, see, that's the young man fighting. Or how can I beat Satan? That's the young man. The focus of the elder is, how can I help others? So from a, a settled relationship with God and a confidence in God, you've now moved to focus your, your life and your purpose on others. What remains is a deep communion with God that is not unshakable, but it is firm. You know, you end with a great confidence, a settled trust, if you will, that he will not leave me nor forsake me. Not only am I no longer alone, I will never be alone again. That's the confidence of the elder. What he has begun in me, he will finish. That's the promise. I don't know what's going on right now, and I don't know why everything's going wrong, and I don't know why my world is falling apart, but he will not leave me nor forsake me. This relationship I have with him is permanent, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Paul said. And when this life is over, and it ends for every one of us, we're all on the timetable. He will come for me. And when I finally close my eyes in death, when I open them, it's his face I will see. That's the promise. Where he is, Jesus said, that where I am, there you may be also. That's the promise. That where I am, there you may be also. That's our hope. That's the promise for our future. Everything else is transitory. This relationship with Christ is permanent. That's the promise. And then sandwiched in the middle of these two parallel thoughts are these young men. The first thing he says about the young men is you've overcome the wicked one, past, present, active. All right. And then he says you are experiencing abiding victory, past, present, active. You're experiencing 
abiding victory over Satan. That's the first thing that when you start moving out of the baby stage as a Christian, you begin to discover that if you trust Christ, you can do some things. You start to discover that, you know, those old habits and sins that weighed you down and tripped you up, if you exercise faith and call on Christ to help you, you can beat those suckers and you can rise above them. When you get to that point, you've turned into a young man, see? The second thing he says, you're strong and the word of God abides in you. And you discover that through reading and studying and memorizing the word of God is power. That's your weapon, you see. Your foundation stands strong. You've come to know God's word and you experience God's abiding presence in your life. The progression goes like this through these three although I'm doing them in a different order than John did. First, birth, then discipline, then you discover spiritual power, and then you have confidence in God. That appears to be what this poem is about. Clearly, all three groups are Christians, just on different levels of maturity. It's written to all of us what's coming next. Now, there's a little sidebar here that I wanted to share with you that I introduced last week. Uh, and that is, while, while uh, all of these uh, admonitions, these descriptions, are written to men, uh, in this case, I clearly believe they're generic of groups, not males. All right, it's the masculine term, because Greek is gender specific. But we're so gender sensitive in our culture in fact, we've gone from gender sensitive to gender insane in our culture. Uh, we're so general sensitive that when you read that, you think, well, well, what, well, well what about the ladies? Uh, well, the fact is, the ladies are included in this. And, you know, I, I don't know if this is appropriate to say. I, I started to write it down, and then I didn't. But I'm going to say it anyway, which is probably not a good thing. In, in that day, in that day, a guy walking down the street didn't just start talking to some lady. I mean, it just didn't happen. Uh, they, they had senses of propriety that were far more sensitive than ours. So it wouldn't be uncommon at all in a mixed group to only address the men. Uh, but not only that, the scripture does that as well. In Ephesians 4.8, I'm going to read you a short passage of Ephesians 4.8. When you, you'll know this passage when you hear it. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Huh? What about the girls? Well, it includes the girls. It really means men and women. It's generic of a group, see. Men here is a reference to all mankind. The Lord did not limit the spiritual gifts to the male population of the church, but he, all of his believers received spiritual gifts. It's just the way they talked back then. There's a, another case in Matthew 13 and 38 where it's Jesus' words. Uh, that was Paul in Ephesians. Jesus in Matthew 13, 38 said, the field is the world. He's explaining the parable of the sower. He said, the field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom and the tares are the children of the wicked one. Which King James did really well because when you hear children, you think of boys and girls, right? And that makes sense, but that's not what the word in the Greek is. The word in the Greek is sons. All right. He gave children. He gave, um, I lost my place. The field is the world, because he... But the tares that are the, the, the good seed are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the wicked one. A masculine term. But clearly, it wasn't limited to boys. 
as boys and girls. It's just the way they wrote back then. So although our passage today, our little poem that, that I suppose you could spend months memorizing and, and meditating on and come up with far more than I've come up with here, but our little passage today, this, this poem, I clearly believe, applies to both genders and, and is specific to us based on our maturity level. So I believe clearly that the Holy Spirit here is saying to everyone in the church, I know where you're at. You know, I, uh, I remember a time my mother had a fight with my English teacher. I was in a class of 800 and I think I was 780th in the class. And that's from the top, not from the bottom. Uh, so I wasn't what you'd call an excellent student. And my English teacher, her name was Burkett, Mrs. Burkett, uh, told my mother in a parent conference that I was hopeless and that I'd, I'd never make it through freshman English in college, which she was accurate. She was right. I barely made it through freshman English. It took a couple of tries. But my mother's response to her was, I thought teachers were supposed to take, I mean, she said something like, he'll never come up to my level. He, that's me, will never come up to my, that's Burkett's level. And my mother's response, I remember that to this day, was I, I thought your job was to take him where he's at and get him as far as you can get him. And she just kind of, oh, well, well, yeah, yeah. And that's below me to deal with that loser, you know. She didn't say that, but her body language did. But the message here, I believe, as you look at this, is, is there's no position you're at where God cannot deal with you. See, there's no level from born one all the way up to an elder that these scriptures don't apply and the Holy Spirit can't make them applicable to you. They should speak to you where you're at, whether you're a brand new Christian or you've been reading this for a very, very long time. And this is really the problem I'm having with First John. It's been a very long time since I've been back and studied this book. And I was thinking it was easy. Silly me. The book changed while I was gone. See, and that's what you'll notice. You can, you can spend some time in the book of John, the big book of Big John. And you can spend some time in that and you come back and read it again and you think, wow, there's a whole lot more here than I saw the last time through it. And that, that's the way it is. The Holy Spirit adapts it to your growth level. That's the point here. So what's the message? That's the point, but what's the message? So you find that in verse 15. Love not the world. So the message today is about the world. All that is just introduction to the message. Not mine, his. Of course, I drug him out a little bit. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Love not the world, he said. Actually, he said, stop loving the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man, and it'd probably be better to make it genderless, if anybody, any Christian, Loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So the warning is to every one of us that we, and we can't claim a lack of maturity. We have to be cautious about this admonition right from the get-go, from a, a little baby born-again Christian all the way up to the mature Christian because we're all guilty of this. You know, it, it's not saying don't go out and fall in love with the world. It's saying, Christians, you're already in love with the world. Stop it. That's the message, see? You're too identified with the world. We've often said that about the church in general. Christians in specific, in this country at least, we're too in love with the world. We focus too much on the world and not enough on the things that really matter. 
So the warning is to all of us to stop loving. Stop Now the word there, love, is agape, and that's a tricky little word. And it usually means completeness, and it does mean completeness, but it also it's a giving type of thing. Stop giving yourselves to the world. Or if you like the idea of completeness in the word agape, then you could say stop completely giving yourself to the world. Stop it. Stop it. Now, the word for world in the Bible is used three different ways, and clearly this is used the third way. The first way it's used is of the physical world that God created. John uh, 1.10 says he was in the world, and the world was made by him. See, he was in the world, and the world was made by him. The world, speaking about the world that we talk about, the dirt that we walk on, the planets, the universe, all of that. That's the first use of that word. The second, the word, by the way, in the Greek is cosmos. Uh, it's the idea of putting things together. It's the idea of assembling things in order. It's the root of our word cosmetic. So when you, when you get in front of a mirror, lady, that's what you're doing. You're putting your face together. That's what the word means. The second use of that word world is the world of humans, often the lost world. But you can talk about the saved world too. You know, Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He wasn't talking about the planet now. He's talking about the people, in particular, the lost people. See, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish. That's the message. Now, the third use of the word world is the one that this one is applying to when it says stop loving the world. And that is a satanic, anti-God world system that operates in direct opposition and at war with the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1430, Jesus said of Satan, the prince of this world cometh. The prince of this world cometh. He's talking about a world system. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, Paul talks about the God of this world. Again, it's a world system. It's an anti-God world system ruled by Satan. It's a spiritual government. You know, we don't like to think about it in our culture. In other cultures, they're very much aware of this satanic government. And any missionary that's ever been overseas and become sensitive to the spirit world comes back to this country and will tell you that the spiritual world is more active here than it is in what we call darker countries because we're completely unaware of what they're doing. It's a spiritual government. It's unseen, but it's quite active, and it's operating in direct opposition to God. This is what we have to understand as Christians. The world, is the world. when we speak about this third definition, this satanic world system, that world is at war with God. And if you're on God's side, you have to understand that that world is at war with you. We are its enemies, and it is our enemy. The world system works diligently to weaken and destroy our lives. We have to be aware of that. We cannot just close our eyes to what's going on and blithely go through our lives thinking everything's okay. For all that is in the world, verse 16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Lust is a little strong in our culture. We're so sensitive to these words. You can translate that to desires. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of our eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world, part of the world system. Those things that we see, touch, and feel, and fall in love with, that's not God. The world system attempts to replace our relationship to God with other stuff, and it will do it if we let it. It promises us happiness. 
It promises us peace and comfort and love and security, all apart from God. And the world, the lost world, runs after these things, hoping that it will bring them happiness and peace and security and comfort and joy. It never delivers. Satan is a liar. He promises, but he never delivers it. And that's what the world is chasing right now. The fearful thing to me is to see that the church is caught up in all this as well. You have to understand that this world system that appears or says or claims to provide so much desires you, Christian, to be powerless, confused, selfish, satisfied, and separated from God. Now, how does it do that? How does it take us from being powerful, born-again Christians who know we're strong in the Word and turns us into powerless, confused, selfish, satisfied Christians? How does it do that? It lulls us to sleep. And it changes our values. So you go back and you watch uh, TV back in the 50s and, and, and catch, catch some of those early shows. And then you bring it up now to a modern day show. And you see how the culture has changed. All right. What it's attempting to do is change your values. It's attempting to change the way you look at life. Your goals in life. You know, a lot of people want their kids to go to a good school. Get a good job. Make lots of money. Why? Why? What's that money going to bring them? Think about it. Why isn't our goal to have our kids wholly committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and do whatever he says, even if they're paupers? Even if they die young, aren't they better off? The world system does this by changing our values, altering our goals, weakening our morals, and confusing our direction. That's the purpose of the world. Christian, you need to be aware of that. Love not the world. Stop loving the world. Present imperative. This is already going on and commanded to stop. We live in a physical world. This is the hard part, Christian. We live in a world where we get hungry and we get cold. And we get wet. We live in a world where we have things we want. That's not a sin. It's not a sin to want to live under a roof. It's not a sin to want a, a sandwich when you're hungry. It's not a sin to want to wear clothes. Actually, it's a sin not to wear clothes. You're really kind of caught in a catch-22 there. But we live in a physical world. We have needs that have to be met. Nothing wrong with that. There's no sin in that. We're all attracted to the things in the world. But we must not be given over to them. They must not be the purpose of our life. We must not be driven and controlled by them. People that say, well, I want to retire by 40. Really? I don't think that's God's plan for your life. God's plan is that you serve him until he take you home. Period. You know, Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things, I added the word other, all these things shall be added unto you. Neither are the things of the world. They should not be driving us. Although these things are neutral and are of themselves, present no harm to us, the enemy can use these to trap us. The, the problem, like everything, it isn't, in, it isn't in the item. It's in our nature. It's in our fallen nature. We have to recognize that there is a flaw in us that we have yet to figure out how to overcome. The enemy can use these to trap us in our old nature. Now, John lists three, the lust of the flesh. That's our base desires. Think of Eve. Think of David. 
The lust of the eyes, that's false values. Think of Solomon putting all his money in horses, gold, and 700 wives. You know, you talk about a guy that got caught up in the world. I mean, he just drowned in the world. And the pride of life. Our need to be somebody really special. Isn't that us? I really want to be recognized. I want to be special. Our need to be special, the pride of life. Think of Samson. Where did he get him? Think of Ananias and Sapphira. Didn't work out too well for them. These, these things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and if that makes you uncomfortable, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, these are spiritual avenues through which Satan can entrap us and control us. We have to recognize those. You know, I, I love my sailboat. I spent years building it. I spent years working on it. I tie it up, and every time I walk away and I look at it and I say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. If I'm not careful, that can become a, a, a God with a little g to me. I have to be careful that that doesn't empower and doesn't control me, that it doesn't break my relationship with God. And that's true for all of us. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about sports or you're talking about music or you're talking about school or you're talking about success at work or you're talking about the right mate for life or you're talking about the right house. It doesn't matter. Satan can take those things and separate you from God, at least attempt to weaken your connection to him. You have to understand that these two loves, the love of the world and the love of God, are mutually exclusive. So in so much as you love one, you will hate the other, Jesus said. That's the point. This is what you have to be careful of. It's not that there's anything wrong with a house. There's nothing wrong with building your own house. But when that house becomes your main purpose in life, you've got a problem, Christian. Verse 17, and the world passes away and the desires thereof. I, I applaud anyone who's interested in saving our planet. I think it's a noble idea, but a fruitless cause because our planet is doomed. Now, if the planet sticks around for another 300 years, it might do some good to plant a few trees and not cut everything down in South America. Uh, but if we're going to be here another 300 years, it might be good not to fish the oceans dry. I, I think there's a reasonable care that needs to be exercised on the world. But for the Christian, we have to understand the only thing that's eternal, the only thing that lasts, I think I need to make a plural there. The only things that last are people. People are what matter. This world is passing away. Peter tells us it's going gonna, it's gonna to melt in fervent heat. That's what the song was about. It's going to melt like snow. God's going to burn up this world and start over again. He's going to recreate it. What matters are the people that live on it. Years ago, I thought when I first got saved that God would call me to do roofs on missionary homes and build, build houses and do maintenance work. And when he said he wanted me to preach, I said, oh, not that. I can't stand getting up in front of people. But the, the point was, souls are what matter, not houses. It's important to feed, feed the hungry. Don't get me wrong. But when you're done feeding them, tell them about Jesus because that's what really matters. If you want to make an eternal difference, the world is passing away and the desires thereof. But he that does the will of God abides forever. 
at best, you know, at best, loving the world is a waste of time. At worst, it's a distraction and a barrier between you and your service to the Lord Jesus Christ. And time is so very short. It's the love of the world that has crippled so many churches in our age, in our day right now, so focused on the things of the world that they've lost sight of eternal values. It's the love of the world that's destroyed so many families. How many men spend all their time working they don't have time for their families? And I suppose that's becoming true of women. I'm, I'm a child of the 50s, so I'm back there, what, 60 years ago. I, I don't really know what it's like to grow up in this world. Now, I got old and don't pay attention to it anymore. But it's the love of this world that destroys our families. And it's the love of this world that leaves Christians fruitless. Are you wondering why there's no fruit in your life? Look at where your heart is. So this is a conclusion from uh, 40 years ago that I thought was kind of cool. Uh, who was this written to? Who was this written to? Says, it was written to all of us, right? Who this was written to? All of us says we are vulnerable to the destructive effect of worldly love. Young, middle-aged, or old as a Christian, we are all vulnerable to distraction. What this is saying is that we must not give ourselves to the world system. We're part of it. But we dare not let it be part of us. See, we have to learn to operate in the world, but not be of the world. And why this was written is because these two loves, the love of the world and the love of God, are mutually exclusive. You can love one or you can love the other. In other words, if you're going to serve Christ, you're going to have to turn your back on the things of the world. You're going to have to quit your job. You're going to have to, well, depending on what he calls you to do, you're going to have to quit your job, at least in your mind. You're going to have to sell your house. At least it won't be your priority anymore. And you're going to have to put other things, the things of God, as a, as a priority in your life. Now, in my case, I had to sell my house, quit my job, and move to a state I didn't want to move to, and leave a state I didn't want to leave. And I, I actually mourned the loss of my geography for a number of years. Uh, that's over now, I think. I hope it is. And that's true for a lot of Christians. We have to leave our families. We have to turn our back on the things we've chosen to do with our lives, and we have to follow whatever he's called us to do. So I ask the question, is your heart growing cold in your walk with Christ? Understand that worldliness will result in a dead heart. It'll chill your soul. And it doesn't happen all at once. It happens in stages. I'm going to share some with you. I'm, I'm almost at the end. James chapter 4 and verse 4 says it starts with a friendship with the world. And James 1.27 says we'll continue. If we continue, we'll be spotted by the world. You meet a lot of Christians that are spotted by the world. Romans 12.2 says if we continue being spotted by the world, we'll end up conformed to this world. Actually, Paul writes, be not conformed to this world. But there's too many of us, isn't there, that are already conformed to this world. And sec, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32 says, In the end, if we're not careful, we'll be condemned with the world. I, I don't believe a born-again believer 
will go to hell. I believe if you've been born, you've been born and you can't be unborn. I believe that Jesus is a sacrifice for all my past sins and my future sins. But I do think that my life will be burned up, condemned for the worthless fruit that I've created in all the time that I've wasted here on the earth. I also believe we'll reap the fruit of our errors. So as I focus on things that don't matter, the things that do matter go by the wayside. And the things that do matter are my relationship to God, my relationship to my family, my wife, and my relationship to my children, and my relationship to my church. These are the things that matter. People matter, not stuff. All right. I do believe while we won't go to heaven as Christians that have fallen and conformed to the world, I do believe we'll lose our testimony. I believe we'll lose our joy. And I believe we'll lose our usefulness to God. And I think as we progress, we'll tear our communities and families apart with our double-mindedness. And I don't think you need to me to prove that. I think all you got to do is read the newspaper and look at where we're at in this country right now. So I end back at the beginning where it says, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's the mutual exclusiveness of worldliness in the church. We can't afford it. It's too expensive. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that far too long and for far too many times we've been distracted from the things that you've called us to. So I pray, Father, you would forgive us. Father, we repent of our worldly love. We repent of our misguided goals in life. Father, we repent on our priorities that aren't set on the things of God. Help us, Father, once again to be restored in right relationship to you through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to focus on things that matter, not things that don't matter. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.